As you know, we're in Ephesians chapter 2. But before we jump in there, I've got a question for you. I've actually got a bit of a, a story to tell you. Now, this didn't really happen. But let's pretend like it did for a minute. Let's say the other day, I went out to go fishing. Okay? You picture it in your head? Went out to go fishing, got my fishing stuff, right? And I didn't want to just go to the creek or something like that. I, I decided to go out to the lake. I had a friend, got a boat, got in the boat, took off, headed out to the center of this lake, right? It was a big boat. Took us a couple hours to get out to the middle of the lake. In fact, we just decided to go downstairs, and he is one of those big double-decker boats, so we decided to go downstairs, and he had a sitting room and everything, and started watching some TV and stuff while we were waiting. And uh, when we got out there to the middle of the lake, like I said, it took us a few hours to get out there. Uh, the way it was getting pretty choppy, and uh, but it was really worth it. We ended up spending the the whole day out there and through the night. And in the middle of the night, we saw one of those ferries going across this lake. Right? Have you seen those big double-decker ferries and they got all the cars? and they, they have to use a ferry because there's no way they could get a bridge across this lake. Now, at what point did you realize I wasn't talking about Lake Vermilion? <laughs> Two hours to get out to the big boat, right? I mean, uh, you started... In fact, it probably wasn't immediate. It was probably like, wait a minute, two hours? Wait a minute. And the more information I gave, the more you like... No, no, this is definitely not. Then the, at the end, the bridge, you can't get a bridge across this lake. What if I was talking about Lake Michigan? I mean, really, should that even be called a lake? Isn't it more like a sea? I mean, this is a totally different class of body of water, isn't it? It's a completely different kind of thing. Now, I share this story with you because the feeling that you get, that you just got as I was describing this lake is the same feeling that I get as I start reading the Bible and the, the topic of salvation. Okay? When we talk about salvation and getting saved and the average person talks about that, and then you go to the Bible and you start reading what the Bible says about it, you start having that same... This is different. This is bigger. This is grander. There's more here to this than I realized. Now, we're also talking about this topic of salvation because, and this is the part I don't want you to miss, we're in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 1 was painting this big picture over the course of history about what God has done and begins talking about the church and salvation. In chapter 2, he kind of shifted gears a little bit and he's talking about what happens in salvation individually to you, right? And so there's a, there's a difference. And so it's in, it, you, you can't quite understand Ephesians chapter 2 unless, first of all, you understood what happened in Ephesians chapter 1, what God has done in history past and what God has done through Jesus Christ and on the cross and the blood and in and, and his church and the presenting of the gospel. All those things were very important to understand. We spent a lot of time talking about that since last September. But in Ephesians chapter 2, 
Paul shifted gears and he says, now we're going to talk about what happened in you when you got saved. And so chapter 2 is a real, like the mechanical workings of salvation. What was going on? Right? Let's pull back the curtain and see what was happening. When, when, when somebody gets saved, what's happening in their heart, and their mind? What's going on actually? And so you don't see in the first ten verses, it, it doesn't talk about the cross because he's already established that. He's talking about what's going on in you. Okay? And if, if you understand that, it makes it make a little bit more sense. Now, do you remember last week, and see, this is why we're talking about this, how big is your view of God's salvation? Because I think that maybe as you read the Bible, and especially Ephesians chapter 2, you may have that same feeling you just had when I was talking about the lake. Because if you read chapter 2 and you start thinking, this is talking about salvation, you might go, this is a little different than what I think. And we always need to be in a, a state of aligning ourselves. Like, okay, here's what I think, but then the Bible says this, what should you do? Chuck this and go with the Bible, right? What's the Bible say? Even if you've been thinking this other thing for 50 years, I mean, frankly, I mean, if we're just really going to get mathematical about it, you're talking to the wrong guy, right? As a math teacher, I'll tell you right now, this has been around for 2,000 years, and the, the, the topic of salvation has been around in God's heart since eternity past. So just because you've believed something for 50 years, that doesn't weigh anything compared to the weight of Scripture, right? And so we have to have that mindset of, okay, what's the Bible say? If it's different than what I think, I need to adjust myself, right? The Bible even talks about in the last days there will be people who gather around themselves the right kind of teachers because they have itching ears and they want to hear what they want to hear. We don't want to be that way, do we? Do you want to just gather around yourself people that are preached to you just what you think and what you already want? No, we want the Word of God. So, last week we started chapter 2 and we talked about the spiritual state of humanity. And remember, this is talking specifically about you at one point, or maybe you still, currently. All of us are born in a certain state. What was that state that Paul established? This is how you were. If you're a Christian now, this is how you were. If you're not a Christian yet, this is how you are. What was the state, if you could describe it in one word, from Ephesians chapter 2? Dead. Hey, that was the same word I had. Let's see here. There it is. Dead. Dead. Paul says, you're, you were dead spiritually. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he goes to describe this. But if we had to summarize it in one word, spiritually dead. Right? Not a living person, a dead person. You know, already this is a little bit different than how some people might view salvation. Getting saved. I mentioned this last week. I said, you know, some people even have a song that says, throw out the lifeline, right? Throw out the lifeline, throw out the... Right? You know that song? Someone is sinking today. That, that's not a good description of salvation. Because if you throw out a lifeline to a dead guy, is he going to grab a hold? Is he going, help me? No. If you throw it out, it's going to hit the dead body and either nothing's going to happen or, you know, it depends on how long he's been dead. I don't want to be gross about it, so I won't go into that, but... That's, that's the picture you need to have in your mind. Dead. Spiritually dead. Not responsive. We're not even talking about a coma. We're talking about dead. So this is a little bit different. You know, Some people even describe salvation this way. They say, well, God did His part 
in offering Jesus Christ, I'm going to do my part in believing. That is not a correct biblical view of salvation. It's not about what God did and I did together is that I'm saved. It's all about what God did. And so, if you're spiritually dead, you're unresponsive. Dead people don't do anything but be dead. They decompose. They might stink eventually. Like Lazarus, who was dead in the tomb, and Jesus was getting ready to say, I'm going to raise him up, I'm going to go and see him, and, and his sisters go, don't. It's already been this many days. He's, and they say, in the Bible, he's already starting to stink. Eventually, dust. That's what dead people do. Dead men don't seek God. They don't cry out to God. They don't call for God. They're dead. This is why the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, for all of sin come short of the glory of God, right? But then it goes much deeper than that, doesn't it? There's none righteous. No, not one. There's no one who understands. There's nobody who seeks after God. Nobody who seeks after God. Paul tells us in Romans. Nobody. There's nobody sitting there seeking after God. Now, do we have a free will? Yes, but the problem is not whether or not we have a free will. It's that our will is set against God, which it says in the first part of Ephesians. Our will, remember we saw that word desire, but it was only translated as the word desire once. The rest of the time in the Bible, 50 some times, it's translated as will. Our will is against God. We're not for Him. But then, so, so here you are, you're spiritually dead unresponsive, not calling out to God, and being dead in sin, you're, you're opposed to the things of God. What's the hope? Verse 4, right? What's verse 4 say? I alluded to this last week. What's the good news of the gospel? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. What's the first two words? But God. But God. This is God's initiative. Some might say, well, we were sinners. But when I called to God, He saved me. Do you see the problem with that? Sinners, but me, then God? That's not right. Paul says, we were sinners, but God, then me. See, we're getting some things confused about this great salvation that God is doing. The emphasis is on God's initiative to intervene. God is the one who took the initiative. Now remember, this isn't we're not talking about some people say, "Yeah, sure. God sent his son Jesus Christ. There's the initiative, right? God did that. We needed mercy. God did this, right? He took the initiative." But remember, Paul is not talking about that anymore. Paul has shifted gears. And he's talking about you as an individual. You have to understand that in your salvation, it was also a, but God. He took the initiative with you. Right? He took the initiative with you. According to what Paul is teaching us. We have God's initiative. But God, next part of the phrase, but God being rich in mercy. God being rich in mercy. Because you might ask the question, why? Why? Why, did, why? why would he take the initiative? Did he find something in me? I mean, we're talking about individuals. Why, why would God take that initiative in me? Why would it be a but God in my life? And I have to tell you right now, it has nothing to do with your character. 
But it has everything to do with God's character. But God, being rich in mercy, this is God's character, is your salvation. God, the, the word rich there means overflowing abundance. We've used this word before. We've seen it before in the, the Bible. I've described it as like a cup. That's, have you ever seen a cup that's got the, the water that's it's kind of bubbled up over the top, right? The, 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 the pressure, the, the tension of the water, the surface pressure, right? And it's not flowing. And then all, you get that one extra drop and then it falls over, right? That's the picture of rich. It's, it's a word that's described as overflowing. God being rich in mercy. God is a merciful God. And that word being means he's in a state of or he's existing in this state. Mercy is goodwill towards us who are miserable and afflicted and it's joined with this desire to help. And so it has everything to do with God's character. God is a merciful God. That's why you are saved. Not just why salvation exists, but why you are saved is because God is merciful. Right? It's like in the Old Testament when Moses says, Lord, reveal yourself to me. And, and God does that by starting off by saying, I'm a merciful God. I'm full of mercy. Right? God is merciful. He's good. Now, most people affirm this mercy towards the world in general. Once again, they'd say, yes, God is merciful. The reason why salvation exists is because God is merciful. But understand, remember, Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about you as an individual. Right? But God, being rich in mercy. Why did God offer salvation? Mercy. Right? Why did I get saved? Well, I prayed. I No. Mercy. Because God is merciful. You weren't a seeker. You weren't seeking after God. We know that. that can't, that's impossible. Paul said nobody does that. God is rich in mercy. And the reason why you're saved is because of God's character. Notice the next part. Paul stacks on top of this. He uses the word because, right? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, because of this great love with which he loved us, right? Uh, this is the cause. That word because literally is just what it sounds like. It's the cause, the the the. We can look at this is the thing, the trigger, right? Because he loved us, this great love with which he, he was in the act of loving us. Great means large, right? Huge love that God has. Uh, and the word love there is this agape, this unconditional love. Because of God's great, magnificent, huge love that he had for us, that he loved us. I mean, do you believe that individually, that the cause of your salvation was God's love for you? Once again, I mean, we have this. We say, yeah, most of us, we'd still agree. We say, yeah, God loved the world. But the re- that's why salvation was offered. But Paul's telling us that the reason why you're saved is the same thing. Because of God's great love for us. And then Paul uses a conjunction here, the word even. And the word even is a type of conjunction that's going to stack it on top of the previous thing, giving more understanding to the previous thing. He says, even when we were what? Dead. Paul goes back to the original topic as if to remind us, don't forget, he's saying, even when we were dead. And so we have God's, God's uh, cause or his reason Right for doing this, but there's this reminder, and this has everything to do with God's 
grace. Now, in a little bit, Paul is going to talk about God's grace. And he actually makes a statement a couple different times, doesn't he? He says, for by grace are you saved. He's going to say it here in just a second in the passage we're looking at. And then he says it again later, the, the famous time where he says it. For by grace are you saved through faith, this not of yourselves. We've all heard that one, right? He actually says it twice in this passage. The first time is coming up. This first time that comes up is kind of a summary statement. And basically, what's Paul, Paul is describing salvation, and then he offers... In fact, some of your versions of the Bible will even have that, that first, by grace are you saved, in parentheses. Some version we put it in parentheses to show the, the grammar of it is saying Paul is kind of summarizing everything I'm talking about. To basically say, this is about grace. This is all about God's grace. Right? Because, see, we were dead. You, individually, were dead. God loved us even when we were dead. He actively loved us even when we were dead. And notice it's a dead in trespasses, or some versions say transgressions. To be dead in your trespasses aligns you with the enemy. See, to be dead in sin doesn't just mean... You see, that heightens the, the, the deadness of it. It doesn't just mean that you were physically dead, unresponsive. It makes it even worse because it's saying you, you were dead to the things of God in such a way that you were actually a, re, a rebel to God. Right? Now, when we think of a rebel, a lot of times we think of the rebellious teenager. Right? But understand this about this idea of being a rebel to God. A, a rebel to God, like, if you think about a country... And, and there's a king, and sometimes there may be a group of people that say, we're going to fight for our freedom. We call them what? Rebels. Right? The rebellion, rebelling for their freedom, what they believe. This is actually a very good picture of what happens in salvation. Adam and Eve were under the, the lordship and the kingship of God the Father. They chose to rebel against his rule. And all of humanity went with them when they did that, according to the Bible. So the picture of salvation is not just a picture of God dying. and, and it, It's a picture of saying, God saying, I'm, I'm dying for a group of, group of people that are in active rebellion against my kingship and my lordship. Right? I mean, when, God, when Christ came, he was not just dying for people that wanted it. He was dying for people who said, we don't want your kingship. We don't want your lordship over us. But see, this is where the compassion of God works out because God knows, because He's God, that the, the, the most important thing for every human being is to have that relationship with Him. In our state of rebellion, we think we don't want that and we don't need that. And so God died to make it possible to bring us back into the state of fellowship with Him even when we were His enemies, right? What is it? Doesn't it even say that? Christ died for who? For his enemies. When we were against him. When we hated him. But now we say, I agree with that. I understand that in the sense of the world. But, but think about it. Even in the context of your own salvation, Paul is telling us that God loved you because he was rich in mercy. Being rich in mercy, because of his great love, he loved you. Even when you, as an individual, were a God-hater. Right? You weren't a God-seeker. You were a God-hater. Nobody is seeking after God. 
None of us. I mean, what's a terrible predicament, isn't it? But God is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Being rich in mercy, right? He did this. And then what did He do? We've got this action. We've got this trespasses, right? Like I said, in the bigger picture of the world, many still would agree. Paul's speaking of us Christians and about our salvation, of course. Even when we were in active rebellion to God, we weren't seeking Him. We weren't praying to Him. We weren't believing the gospel But then what did God do? What was his action? Because of this great grace, what did God do? The next phrase. He made us alive together with Christ. Right? He made us alive together with Christ. This is God's action. Now we can't miss this because remember, we're talking about your individual salvation. If you are a Christian, this would be true of you. Right? God has made us alive together with Christ. Now, this is a really interesting phrase. The first part there, made us alive together with, in the original is one word. It's three parts. It's the word made, it's the word alive, and it's the word with. The word with actually comes at the beginning. And it's, the, it's S-Y-N, like synchronized, right? And this, that S-Y-N part of that word is going to show up three times. And we're not going to get to God. We're just going to get to one today. And, and, and so it's like saying you're, you, you've been made alive and synchronized with Christ. Right? You've been made alive and you're, you're synchronized with. And that's why we have the word with in there. The word made is just what it sounds like. It's a verb. In fact, in chapter 2 from verse 1 to now, there hasn't been in the Greek, there hasn't been a verb yet. Nobody's done anything. We were in a state of rebellion. We were in a state of hating God. We were in a state here. We were under sin. We were under Satan. The first verb here is this one. God took the action in your salvation. That's the initial part. That's the initiative. He made you alive. Right? I mean, the Greek word is literally like the word zoo. You became a living thing, spiritually. And it was God's action that did it. And this is hugely important. We can't miss like all the little things in here, what this means. Now we're going to get to the with part, the synchronized part. Paul then throws in this statement I mentioned earlier, by grace are you saved. Like I said, some versions even put it in parentheses, right? He's summarizing this whole thing. But you have to understand, this is what it's really about. This is a defense of grace, See, for grace to be grace, it's got to be completely unmerited, completely all on one side. Right? If you take any credit, then it's no longer grace. If you're saved because you were a God seeker, then it's no longer grace. Then it's God and you. And you'll be able to stand before God and say, the reason why I'm saved and they're not is because I I was a seeker and they weren't. See, you've, you've taken part of the glory. And one of the reasons why I'm talking about this today, besides the fact that we're in Ephesians and this is what Paul is talking about, it's very important not to diminish, not to belittle the work of God in what He's done. This is all Him. You know, this really starts to undermine maybe how you viewed salvation. Some of you view salvation this way. If I can get it to come up here. I believed... And then I prayed, 
And God made me alive. Got saved. I believed. I prayed. Boom. Christian. If you just read Ephesians chapter 2 and say, is this what Ephesians chapter 2 teaches? You'd have to say no. What Ephesians chapter 2 teaches is something very different. It teaches this instead, if I can get to pop up here. It says, but God, because he was rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead, unresponsive, and dead in trespasses, you were a rebel to God, he made you alive. And it's not until later in the chapter that he starts talking about believing. And in fact, he uses the word faith, which is the same Greek word, basically, just a different tense. And when, when he mentions faith, he says, by the way, that was a gift of God as well, just in case you were wondering. And then he starts talking about things like good works, like prayer. This is not what many people teach. Many people teach the opposite, don't they? When you believe, you'll pray, and then, then you'll get saved. Paul through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is teaching something different. And you start to have that, instead of just a, whoa, this is different like the lake, you start to have a little bit of a sinking feeling, like, this is different. Now, the being made alive and the believing are, goes so close, or, or, or like a simultaneous event. But now let me ask you a question. Uh, there, there's some other simultaneous things that you would always know what the cause is. For example, with this flame right here. This flame produces heat and it produces light. Does it not? The moment that flame comes into being, simultaneously you've got heat and light. But nobody would say that the flame, the fire, right is the result of the heat and the light. The cause is the flame. The heat and the light are the result. You've been made alive. The cause, God. The result, you believe. They're a simultaneous event. But you would never say that the belief is the cause. Just like fire and heat and fire and light. This is not a trivial little difference. This is huge. This is a huge difference. It changes everything. And I preach it to you today out of a defense of God's grace and God's glory. There are many people who, without even realizing it, have been taking some of God's glory. You know, one of these days, my son, Samuel, and maybe Josiah, one of these days, I'm going to go play basketball with one of them, and they're going to beat me. It's not yet, though. One of these days, it's going to happen. Now, let's say that day comes, and I'm playing Samuel, and we're playing basketball, and I'm, he's, man, and he's, and game's up. He makes it to 10 or whatever we're playing to before I do. He's like, man, he's like, I, he wants to tell everybody then, right? I'm sure that's going to happen. Right? I beat my dad playing basketball. I'm just telling you, right? He'll probably be this tall by then, you know, because he couldn't beat me now. Uh, say, he, say he beats me, and he starts telling, he goes inside, and he's telling Charity, he's like, oh, Mom, I beat him. Right? Now imagine what, 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 what happens when I then go, I let him. I let him do it. What have I done in that moment by saying that? 
whether it's true or not, in saying that, what have I done? Haven't I taken his victory and belittled it? Made it less significant, almost insignificant, really. The same thing is true. When you talk about your salvation, and you say, God saved me because I let him. He was trying to save me for a long time, and I finally let him do it. You belittled the victory that God has had over a dead person that was rebellious to God. And he made you alive. You don't get any of the credit for that. And I'm here today to defend the glory of Jesus Christ in his great salvation in you. It's a great salvation. And he deserves all the glory. Now, Paul is going to talk a little bit more about this in a few verses, so we're, we can't leave this behind because Paul just expands on this idea and really digs into the inner workings of this. But besides this idea of being made, let's talk for a minute about this idea of being made alive. Right? Being made alive. The Bible describes salvation in terms of things like this. Regenerated transformed or like in this passage made alive or like you might read in some versions quickened right we don't talk about being quickened anymore but that's it means the same thing right you've been made alive these are the kinds of terms that the bible uses when it talks about what happens when someone gets saved now i'm going to borrow a quote from a guy named aw pink one of my favorite theologians uh, in his book, The Sovereignty of God, he writes about this great salvation. I just want you to hear his words. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you so you can read along with me. I want you to hear his words. Get my slide to come up here. Uh-oh. There we go. He says this, The new birth is very, very much more than simply shedding a few tears due to a temporary remorse over sin. It is far more than changing our course of life. The leaving off of bad habits and the substituting of good ones. It it is something different from the mere cherishing and practicing of noble ideals. It goes infinitely deeper than coming forward to take some popular evangelist or preacher by the hand, signing a pledge card, or joining the church. The new birth is no mere turning over a new leaf, but is the inception and reception of a new life. It is no more no mere reformation, frankly, as some people consider getting saved but a complete transformation. In short, the new birth is a miracle. The result of the supernatural operation of God. It is radical, revolutionary, and lasting. You remember the lake example? How he describes the new birth, getting saved, is how the Bible describes the new birth and getting saved. 
And when you start, when you put it all and you compact it all together, all these different ways the Bible describes it, you start to have that kind of like, whoa, I've been thinking about getting saved kind of like Lake Vermilion, muddy old Lake Vermilion. But it's more like, man, Lake Michigan doesn't even do it justice. We're talking about an ocean, right? God's salvation is a very great, very powerful thing. And for far too long, the people uh, in, in churches in Danville have belittled God's salvation. They've made it seem less significant and less powerful than what it really is. Right? This biblical concept is, is radically different. You know, this wouldn't make sense, this description, all these ideas. Man, it's transformation. It's just amazing thing. This wouldn't make sense if we hadn't had chapter 1 of Ephesians, would it? Chapter 1 of Ephesians ended by, by talking about this res- that Jesus Christ, when He rose up from the grave, that the same power that made Jesus alive is the same power that's going to be at work in people who are Christians. That's the same thing. And so this, a kind of thought like this wouldn't make sense unless you knew that. That this salvation, this powerful salvation is toward us who believe. Getting saved is the same difference between a dead person and an alive person. There can be some similarities between someone who's dead and someone who's alive superficially, isn't there? You know, sometimes they have arms and legs and there's a nose, right? I mean, there could be some similarities. But over time, the difference should be drastic. Not a simple reformation, but a complete transformation. This is why Jesus can teach things in the Bible about you can know someone's heart by their fruit. Right? Or, or why James, when we study James, James says, man says he has faith but does not have works. He's dead still. Right? That's a dead guy. You, you can't have faith and not have works coming out of you. And more, the longer you're alive, more and more things coming out because Jesus is powerful. Or why John, who is sometimes kind of the most in-your-face about things, who always seems so timid when you read about him through the, the, the Gospels, but in his, in when he writes, and I think it's only because of his great love for who Jesus was, and he knew that this powerful Jesus that he saw raise up from the dead, he saw him die, he saw him come back, and he knows that that same power is going to be in Christians. It's why John can say things like this. He can say, how can you say you love God if you don't love your brothers? You're a liar, he says. How can that be unless you understand what salvation is? So now we have a couple of issues that I think that we need to address. I'm going to narrow it down to just two basic things for today. I'm really focusing in on the, being, the fact that you've been made alive in Christ. That salvation is about God's initiative in doing those things because of His character. Number one, the first initiative is, or the first issue I have is this, and I, I think that could come from this passage. The first issue is this: when people say that they're saved because they prayed a prayer, right? How do you know you're saved? Well, I remember when I was six and I prayed this prayer, so I know I'm saved. Or I. I, I, got bab- I got baptized, so I know I'm saved. Or I, I, I prayed the sinner's prayer, so I know I'm saved. Or, 
Or I, I, I had this, I remember this time I was in my car and man, I just knew I needed to do the right thing and I was crying and, and so I know I'm saved because of that. That wouldn't be any different than if, if we went up to the hospital and I was talking to Dwayne and, and, and there was a, a bed over there laying down the hall there and, and I said, Dwayne, are you, is that guy alive down there? And Dwayne said, well, he was when he was six. You'd be like, what? I mean, living things have signs of life. Living And, and to say, I know I'm saved because I was, I, this thing happened way back then, that is no way to check for life. That's just ridiculous. I mean, besides the fact that the Bible even talks about there are people, Jesus says there's, in fact, he says many people on the last day. And I know I use this one all the time, but you can't ignore it. Many people on the last day are going to say, did we not call? Lord, Lord. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Right? I mean, th- th- there are certain signs of life. So the first issue we have to take up is this one. And, and just recognize, first of all, how ridiculous it is to say, I know I'm saved because of this thing I did back when I was six or back when I was ten. That is not how you can know that you're saved. Being saved is about the transforming power of Jesus Christ in your life. And there are signs of life. To know you're saved, you look at, for signs of life now. What kind, of, what kind of things, if you wanted to know if something's alive, what kind of things do you look for? I mean, if you want to get really, really scientific about it, what are the things that say, this is a living thing? How do you know if something's alive? It moves. Grows. That's huge right there. Living things grow. They breathe. Living things produce other living things. There's production. There's growth, right? Jesus says there's fruit. Living things grow. Living things increase. And so we have to take up the second issue and say this. Do you recognize life? Now we could direct this question three ways. First of all, we could just direct it outward. Right? We could direct it outward. All of you in this room, you have people in your life that if you ask them right now, are you a Christian, they would say yes. But we can't, we can't skirt the issue here. We can't skirt what, what a great salvation that God has done. See, that's, that's, that's what I'm hoping that you, you won't miss. That salvation is, is a, an amazingly powerful thing. And, and so when, when, you, when you talk to somebody and you say, you know, are you saved? And they say, yes, I am. And you say, well, how do you know? And you, they say, well, when I was six, I did this and... You need to be a bit of a fruit inspector. And we, we, we've got to stop skirting the issue because when we skirt the issue and just say, oh, okay, you're, you're making what Jesus' Jesus's power to seem small. And, and, and this requires wisdom, doesn't it, to know how to address it? Well, I'm concerned about you, though. I, I know you say this, but I'm concerned about you, your, your spiritual life. Why? Well, you, then you have to be able to go to the Bible, don't you? Do you know what the Bible says about salvation? Well, I think so. Right? I know you just have to believe. Yeah, but do you know what it means when it says believe? Does it, do you think that the Bible teaches that you just have to acknowledge it with your head? Well, that's kind of what I thought. Well, that's, actually, did you know that's not what the Bible teaches at all? In fact, there's some places in the Bible that talk about how you can, you can have a head knowledge and believe it, that Jesus existed. But it's, that salvation is something more than that. Did you know that? 
I didn't know that. Where's that at in the Bible? They may get mad at you at that point. Wait, are you saying I'm not saved? I'm saying I don't know. I'm saying this. I'm saying the Bible doesn't say you can know you're saved because of what you did before. The Bible says you can know you're saved by what you're doing now. And so when you said a minute ago, you know, that you knew you're saved because of what you did when you were six, I was kind of concerned because that's not what the Bible teaches. Right? We need to stop skirting around the issue. And let me put it this way. If you've got somebody that you love, right? Now, and let's say they say, you know, say they pick up a you know, big can here. They're getting ready to take a big drink. And, and uh, you're like, hey, what's, what's, what's in that? I think it's something good. I think that's poison. I, I don't know. You know, I, I think I saw this sitting here yesterday, and I think it was okay. Whoa! <laughs> Wait a minute. Can't, we, we need to check this thing out first. Right? And then when you have people that you love, you, you're concerned about their, what's going to happen to them in life. But yet there are a lot of us as Christians that if you were to just evaluate our love based on how concerned we are about their spiritual life, it, 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 it'd be like we don't love them at all. I mean, how can we have people in our lives that we're not for sure that they're going to heaven? Or, I mean, would you just take their word for it? Are you sure that's not poison? Yeah, I think so. Wait a minute. I, I love you enough here to stop you for a second and say this doesn't seem safe. I mean, if you even have a little bit of love for somebody, you would do that. But some of us, we have people that we would say that we love dearly, but we are unwilling to question their salvation. Are you willing to just take their word for it, even though you don't see any results of it? Now, we could also direct this inward, couldn't we? Point the guns back this way. We could direct this inward. Now, ask yourself the question right now. Do you have any signs of spiritual life? Now, I'm not talking about, well, I go to church and I read my Bible. I pray sometimes. And signs of life are a little bit more than that, aren't they? And one of the biggest signs of life is growth. Right, can you look back to where, what kind of person you were a year ago and say, I'm closer to God today than I was a year ago? That's only by God's grace. But I'm, I'm, you need to be able to see growth change. I, I am deeply concerned for all of you. And some of you, I don't know you well enough outside of just being in here to know if you're growing in Christ. But I do not want to stand before God one day having not said what I'm getting ready to say. I do not want to stand before God to give an account for how I've lived and not have said at least this once what I'm getting ready to say. I am concerned that in this church, right now, in this group, right here, not just in the church in large, but these people that are in this room right now, all of you, I, I am concerned about all of your souls. I don't know for sure that all of you are saved. There's some of you, I think so. Some of you, i got to be honest, I don't know. I've not seen signs of life, and so I just don't know. Part of that's because I, I'm not with you all the time, right? So I couldn't see that. And so... So I, I say it knowing that some of you might go, mm, I don't like him saying this. But you understand, I'm saying it because I deeply, deeply care. 
I'm concerned about your soul. I would not be surprised at all if the rapture came right now and many of us were still in this room. I'm concerned for your soul. Take some time. Ask yourself the hard questions. If you don't want to, if you if you don't like it, ask somebody else. Say, ask your spouse, ask your a friend. Say, do you feel like I'm growing in Christ? Please be honest. I won't punch you, right? <laughs> do you feel like I'm growing? I mean, have you seen signs of life in me? Well, I don't want to ask that because I don't. You know, the Bible tells us that we can be deceived in ourselves. That we can think we're okay when we're not, spiritually. And I don't just mean like, oh, well, because part of this is this, this idea that we're trying to combat here. See, some people have this idea that there's the, the radical Christian, the one that's just being transformed by Christ, and they're totally different than they used to be. And then you've got the lost person over here, and then you've got a bunch of people that they're saved, but they're just not, blah, you know, for God. The Bible doesn't teach that. Because the Bible teaches that God's radical, life-changing power is, is in everybody that believes. Every Christian is there. So you have to ask the question, is there fruit in me? Am I producing? Am I growing? Am I changing? It, I'm concerned for all of your souls. We have to ask that last question as well. And we actually talked about this in Sunday school today, in the book of Revelation. Because we don't have to just direct it outward. And we don't just direct it inward personally. But as I'm doing right now, we have to direct it towards our church. And we mentioned this one today. Denise brought this one up. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And I believe I have this with a slide here for you. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 we'll start with. And this is where we'll close. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars... I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive. But you're dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. I'm concerned. This is my concern. I'm concerned that if God were to show up in this building today this might be the words he would have for us. You have a reputation for life, but you're dead spiritually. You're not growing in Christ. You may have this head knowledge where you believe Jesus existed, but you are hard to the things of God to do what he would want you to do. This was a real church. And these are the words that they heard. And I'm concerned that we might hear the same words. We might hear these same words. Verse 3 says, What are we supposed to do then? Right? Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. We talked about this word in Sunday school today. Repent. Change your mind. Change what you're doing ultimately. When you change your mind, you begin to change what you're doing. Just because you've had the same view of what church and Christianity should be like for last 50 years and this is what I heard and this is how I've always believed and this is what I think it should be. Let God's Word impact you in such a way that you align yourself with what God says not what you think. And repent. There's some encouragement in here. 
Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Not, before we get to the encouragement, it says, "Remember what you've received and heard. Keep and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you." This is not an allusion to God's returning in the rapture. This is an allusion to judgment on this church. If you don't wake up, he says, I'm going to come when you're not expecting it against you. A lot of people don't know this, that the city of Sardis, twice in their history before this was written, twice in their history, they were sacked by enemies because they had watchmen that weren't keeping watch. Two times in their history, in the, the church of Sardis, two, two times they had watchmen that weren't doing their job to warn, hey, there's an enemy coming. They weren't doing their job, and twice they got sacked, right? The whole city was destroyed because the watchmen weren't doing their job. And so that kind of plays into this, doesn't it? I'm going to come when you're not expecting it, if you don't wake up, like those watchmen that were sleeping. If you don't wake up out of your contentedness with life, my vacations, my TV shows, the things I enjoy, uh, you know, the good life that I like, comfort, ease, happiness, the things I want. Man, you've got to wake up. You've got to wake up. God's going to come, and we're not going to expect it. Right? It's time to wake up. The hope comes in the next verse. I love this. Yet, he says, you still have a few names in Sardis. Right? There's still a few people in Sardis, a few names. People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. In other words, before I read the rest of that, understand this. The few names, the few people in this church of Sardis, to walk in white is is describing these people are saved. So these people that are asleep, these people that are... Literally, when he said dead, he meant dead. Spiritually dead. They're going to go to hell when they die, these people that go to this church, because they're not awake the call to wake up, the call to do this is a call to salvation. A call to genuine, the real deal, salvation. And that's the call that he has. Right? And so he ends here, verse 5. Sorry, I didn't read the rest of verse 4. They'll walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he ends, verses 5 and 6. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name for the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I'm going to close today with this challenge. My thought today is on two, two fronts. One, those of you are the, that are the few names left in this building, that genuinely you're saved before God, you're saved. There's a call to action, a call to be a good watchman, to wake up, to rise up, and to, to cling to the things of God, not be complacent in your life, not just think about the ease and the smoothness of life, but there's this whole city around us that's going to die and go to hell, and we, have, we know the truth. And we need to wake up and, and get out of our comfort zones, get out of our, our, our ease of life, and, and start praying, God, show me what I can do in this city before it's too late. And so my call is to some of you to, to preach the real gospel, the, a gospel not of just head acknowledgement. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I prayed a prayer when I was a kid. No, we're talking about the real thing, a powerful Jesus that is powerful to save. And the time is running short, I believe. 
to get to that point. Our church is struggling and dwindling, and I believe this is the area that needs to change. For those of you in this room, there's some in this room that have thought they were saved their whole lives and are not. I'm convinced. It's, it was this way in many churches in the past. It could be this way right here, right now. It could be possible that some of you are sitting in this room right now, even now, as I'm saying it, are not worried at all. You know, one of the, good, one of the signs of Christians is that when you start talking about things like this, they start, they start examining themselves anyway. No matter how they've lived their life, no matter how radical they've been for Jesus, no matter how much they've, they've, they've clung to Him and strived for Him and how much they've read God's Word and sought after Him, when you start talking about things like this, you know what they do anyway? They still go, Oh Lord, am I, am I, is my soul right with You? Lord, am I producing the fruit that I... Lord, if, if I'm not, save me. Again, Lord, I pray it just again. I just, I just want to know. I want to be Your child. I want to do whatever You want. One of the surest signs of a lack of genuine salvation is the ability to hear about God's great gospel and think in your head, that's not for me. That's for somebody else in the room. One of the surest signs that you are not a Christian is if you can hear about the great gospel of Jesus Christ and just go, it's not for me. Those who love God are the kind of people that are on their knees saying, Lord, I'm a great sinner. I'm an always, always going to be in need of your grace. Fill me again with your spirit. Lord, don't take it away from me. Lord, fill me with it today. Now I'm going to pray. And as I do, I want you to go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm not going to have an invitation right now, but I'm definitely going to tell you right now if you go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes, and just think about these things for a minute. Examine your heart. Do you have fruit? Is it there? Are you listening to the gospel message and thinking, I hope somebody else is listening? Are you listening to the gospel message and just thinking about other things? There's some of you as Jonathan Edwards once described, are hanging like a thread over the abyss. It's only God's mercy that has extended the time. Before you know it, you're going to be standing before God. Are you ready? Not, have you prayed a prayer? Not, have you been baptized? Not, have you gone to church for a long time? No, 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 no. Are you alive? Are you growing? Are you changing? Are you in a constant state of being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ? If that is not true, then you have every reason in the world to say, I don't know for sure that I'm saved. Let's pray. God, our Father, I just want to pray an intercessory prayer for just a moment for every soul in this room. Lord, my concern, and you know my heart, God, that I'm concerned that not everyone in this room really knows you. Lord, I'm concerned that not every soul... Lord, I believe that there are people in this room right now that are absolutely convinced that they're saved 
and they're not. So God, I'm crying out to you, and I'm, I want to, on their behalf, Lord, I want to pray to you, Lord, would you make them alive? Begin that work in their heart, Lord, so that they might come to a true saving faith and a true knowledge of you. Lord, some hearts are so hard and so cold for so many years, Lord, you would have to bulldoze it all down. So, Lord, I pray in addition that you would do whatever it takes to bring each person in this room to a saving knowledge of you. Lord, I pray that you would do whatever it takes to work a great salvation at Edgewood Baptist Church. Lord, that we wouldn't be dead, but that we would be full of spiritual life. Lord God, I pray for those in this room that are concerned and that think in their mind, maybe, I don't know, I I thought, but I'm not sure. God, I pray, Lord, regardless, that they would seek you out. They would get on their knees and, and pray to you and say, Father, don't come yet. I want to know. I want to be right with you. Lord, I close today with a trust and a belief and a confidence in how great your salvation is. Lord, believing as well that that anything that might inhibit your gospel, God, I pray as well that if there are people in this room that on the other hand, Lord, would not just not accept it, Lord, but fight against your gospel. Father God, I turn them over to you and I put them in your hands. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name, in Jesus' powerful name.